And Father, as we open Your Word tonight, we see that plan. We see that plan that was laid out so so early, even from the foundation of the world. And Lord, we see this world that has so much hurt, but we also see the healing, Lord, that You have worked. And so Father, as those who have partaken of that healing and have been set free, we rejoice in this place tonight. And I pray, Father, as we look at Your Word, especially in this book of Isaiah written so long ago, I pray, Father, that we would understand that it was for our learning even today. So, Father, I pray that you would make it real, applicable, and doable within our lives. And, Lord, as you do, I pray, Father, that we would be a people found faithful. So, Lord, we just lift up this evening to you that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to greet your neighbors. Greetings. No, I did not say, say hello. I said greetings. Greetings. Diana's all alone tonight. Her husband left her. He's actually in sound. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. We'll be picking up at verse 5, but I'll start reading from verse 1. Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 42. I'll start reading from verse 1. What we're looking at here is the ministry of Messiah. And I'll just preface as you're turning there. There's the office of Messiah and there's the person Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the office of Messiah. And so, a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, we need to look at it from that perspective to gain understanding that this is being spoken of as Messiah to come, the office of Messiah. So the responsibilities of Messiah, the work of Messiah, so on and so forth. Again, that we know was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 1, Behold! My servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, and he will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles." to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So what we've been looking at in the book of Isaiah, keeping in mind Isaiah, we know Isaiah as the prophet, which he is, no doubt, but he is the court historian within the Judean court, well, in the, in the castle, if you will. The, the, he, he had this close relationship with the various kings, and he was writing history. 
And it's interesting, as God enters into the history of mankind to reveal Himself, well, we're getting a lot of first-hand information from this prophet Isaiah. Now, during our study of the book of Isaiah, we saw there was the country of Assyria that was running throughout all of the nations. And they were conquering nations, they were bringing nations into captivity. They came all the way up to the doorstep of Jerusalem, only to be turned away by God. And now it's as if all of these things are going on, kind of as a pattern what we see in, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, it speaks of the raging nations, kind of sort of like what we have today, but it says, why do the nations rage, or why do they conspire, and the people plot a vain thing? Mankind is busy building all of his kingdoms and willing to conquer other nations to do so. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. And so all of the, the nations are raising, Assyria is raging, Babylon will soon be upon the scene, and all of these things. And in the, the last couple of chapters, God now enters into the picture, and we see the hand of the Lord. It's important for us, because even as I said in my prayer, Lord, make this applicable, because we're not just studying history here tonight. We're looking at how God moves in the hearts of men and women. And we look at, well, we look at our society, we look at the situation worldwide, and there's a lot of raging going on. Have you seen the debates as of late? I mean, never, I don't recall them ever being so insulting and so much raging and ranting going on. It's like it's just going to come down to the last person left standing. And it really has become almost an embarrassment, really, on both sides of the aisle. There just happens to be more Republicans, so there's more of it going on in that camp. But still, we see this raging going on, and we see the insecurities that can so easily come from that. Well, except for the born-again believer. Because it doesn't matter who's president, because we know who's king. And as long as we focus upon who's king, then it won't really matter who's president. And what I mean by that is, is our president, well, he's directed by God ultimately. Now, we get good presidents and what we may consider bad presidents, and a bad president usually is a result of the people getting their will, especially when it's contrary to God. But nonetheless, the thing that we know, the thing that we understand as we read the Bible from cover to cover, God's in control. And so in Isaiah chapter 42, and even previously, the last couple of chapters, God has entered in in order to remind us of these things. And, and in chapter 42, the one we've been speaking of here is the Father as He's introducing us to the Son, or God as He's entering or introducing us to Messiah. So the last couple of months, we've seen in chapter 40, the greatness of God. That God is greater than creation because He's the one who created it. He's greater than the nations because He's the one who established them. God is greater than idols because in actuality they don't exist. They're figments of man's imagination. That God is greater than the rulers. He's the one who places them in office. God is greater than the stars, the stars of the sky, the vastness of the universe. And God is greater even as we close that section out than our discouragement, that he upholds us, especially during difficult days. Then we saw in chapter 41 the superiority of God, that he is superior over the nations, that he is 
made a superior commitment to man and that he is superior over the gods of mankind. Then we entered into chapter 42 a couple of weeks ago, and we saw where the previous chapters were all leading to. And if you look at the last verse in chapter 41, that was kind of a turning point, really a marrying together of chapter uh, 41, verse 29, with chapter 42, verse 1. It says, indeed, now he's talking about the rulers and the kings and all the nations. Indeed, they're all worthless Their works are nothing, and molded images are wind and confusion. And then chapter 42, but behold. See, he's lumping all of that, of the world all together and saying how worthless it really all is. Everything that is contrary to God. But then he says, behold, or check it out. And what is it that we're checking out? Well, he refers to him in verse 1 as my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And we know this to be Messiah. Now in chapter 41, again, God is the one who proclaims the things that are going to happen before they happen. And we saw that he named a king to come some 150 years later so that we would know and understand as he spoke of King Cyrus. And so God all of the things that are going on, they are under His control. They come through the hands of Him or allowed by Him, and as the events of this world go on, that needs to be the constant constant rock that we have for security is the knowledge of who God is. Our faith in Him is the anchor to our soul, regardless of the ways that the winds blow and the storms beat. If we are left, though, without Him, if if it all ends at verse 29, indeed all are worthless and their works are nothing, their molded images are wind and confusion, if we're left there, then we're just no better than the world. And the world? The world has no hope. And at some point, the world, the world has despair. It does the best that it can. I haven't been watching it. I imagine it was probably been on TV all day. It's the Academy Awards. It's that time every year that the movie industry gets together and gives itself awards. Kind of funny, but nonetheless, you see everything that the world has to offer. You see the various movies. And again, if you look at the various themes of the various movies, 90% of them are based upon some kind of sin issue. And then you see the people on the red carpet, not very modestly dressed. I didn't see that, but I've seen it in the past, and not very modestly dressed. And, and really what you're looking at is, is what so many people aspire to, but the problem is it's all fantasy in the midst of despair. Because as good as those people may look, as done up as they are, they're withering away. They're withering away, and their fame and their fortune, as we looked at this morning, within itself, isn't going to be able to do a thing for them. And then every week you hear about it, it's the murder, or even just as bad, the murder-suicide. Somebody who has just given up and really gone over the edge. It was that one man, what was it, Michigan, wherever it was, the Uber guy, who he, he, he killed people, he went and picked up fares and delivered the people to where they needed to go and went off and killed some more people. Uh, and again, you just see that, that mindset and something is tweaked there. It's not so much that he was insane, it's just that he has just completely given up. There is just absolutely no hope. And again, that's the worst thing that you can convince somebody of. If you want to destroy a person, convince them that there is no hope. 
It's the advent of everybody, the mindset of everybody who has ever committed suicide. The Apostle Paul, he blew into Athens one day in Acts chapter 17. He went into the synagogues as he usually does and he preached the gospel. He was done there, so he went into the marketplace. He went into the malls. He went out into society, if you will. And then he encountered some people there because human philosophy had just kind of played itself out. And again, it, can, it, it just was not able to, to fill that longing within mankind to make sense of life, and even more important than that, make sense of death. And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it says, For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of something new. They're looking for somebody's good idea that would make all the difference. But again, if the source is man, then truly nothing is able to come about. Throughout all of the years, throughout all of the centuries, there's been nothing that even approaches the gospel. Nothing that's been able to give hope as the gospel is able to give hope to mankind. See, man realizes that the end of himself is imminent, so his temporary comfort would be very important to him. But there's the problem. Sooner or later, you're going to have to face your own mortality. And then, and then you see the power of your philosophy at that point because it stares you in the face. So entering into chapter 42, we see one who is to alter the course of history, offering mankind hope as no others have been able to do, and the contentment that man so seeks. And we know that came about through God's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant, who I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth uh, forth justice to the Gentiles. And I asked for a raising of hands, I think, last time. Does anybody here Jewish have a Jewish background at all? That means this applies to you then, because that means we're all Gentiles here. And so God entered into our life, brought forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. So he's brought forth justice to the Gentiles and you could think, well, I thought that we weren't supposed to want justice because we're all guilty. Well, how did he bring forth justice? He brought forth justice upon the cross. He paid the price for our sins because again, God, we, we see so many of his attributes and one of his attributes is that God is just. He's perfectly right. And so that's why, again, he didn't just throw a blanket of forgiveness over all of humanity. Okay, I just, I just forgive everybody. Just go out and do whatever you want, and I, I have to forgive, so I just forgive everybody. Well, he can't, that, that, that does damage to justice. And so since he's built the law, and since he's built truth, then it's important that justice would be included in that, or maybe justice would be a result of all of that. And so because God just, it was contrary to him to just forgive everybody, somebody had to pay a price. And we know that that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So we got justice that we are able to endure upon the cross, or maybe I should say because of the cross. And so because of the cross, justice demanded that I pay a price. It's a price I can't pay. Christ paid it for me. And now through faith in him, I can enter into the presence of God. So the first thing that we see here 
in chapters, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 5 through 9, is the unity of God for His purposes. Now, it says here, and then we have this picture again, is God speaking to His Messiah. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, that which comes from it, spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you. Now, I would imagine in your Bibles, it's in my Bibles, the Y's here, the you, the Y for you, it's capitalized, so it's obvious that he's speaking to Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, when I was in Israel, I think it was what last May, was it last May, May or March, whenever we were in Israel last, we went to the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the part of the temple that is still left, the Temple Mount that is still left. It's that huge wall that has the cracks, and people are all putting their prayers in there. Thought it was kind of funny. You have all these people putting their prayers in there, and a lot of Jews that. Are, are, are truly hardcore Jews, dedicated Jews, and they're putting their prayers in, and behind them there's a guy taking them all out and sweeping them up and throwing them in a trash can. And it's kind of a picture of religion without Messiah. It just doesn't have anything to do with our study tonight, but I just thought that, that just really struck me. I thought it was a very profound uh, statement or picture there. But nonetheless, I was kind of sitting there, and you, you kind of go up, it's kind of a madhouse. There. There's all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. There's very orthodox Jews there. And I sat down on this wall, and there was another guy who was on tour with us. He was kind of standing over here. And on the other side, there was a rabbi with his students there. And I noticed he kind of gotten into a discussion that was kind of a little bit more, than an, more of an argument, the rabbi with the guy that was on the tour bus. Because the, the rabbi had asked him what he was doing there, and he said he was a Christian, and they got into who Messiah is and Jesus Christ and whatnot. And I heard the rabbi's argument. He said, and these are his words, if God was here, how could he be there? And his point was, well, if Jesus Christ is God, then who was minding the store in heaven? And I think he kind of put it that way. And so when you're considering this now, that, that's, a, that's a valid argument. I have actually heard it before. You know, if, if Jesus Christ was truly God, and, and while he was here, he was praying to the Father, who was he praying to? I mean, if he's God, he was praying to God, how could God be divided, and so on and so forth? Well, we know that's possible because of the Trinity. We know that Jesus Christ did not cease to be God, but set aside some of his godly attributes in order to come in a way that we are able to perceive and understand. But when considering what God can and cannot do, we've got to be careful in limiting him to human abilities. Now, I can't be here and sitting at home at the same time. It's impossible. I know that you can't be here and somewhere else. A human being does not have that ability. But the good thing about God is he's not a human being. Now, Jesus Christ was truly human and fully human, but he was also God as well. And so... I want my God to be beyond me. I want my God to be other than me. I don't want my God to be able to, con to be able, or maybe even necessary to be constrained to my sphere of understanding. I like it that God is beyond my understanding. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, when it says the secret things are the Lord's, that's a good thing. That means that there's things that are too deep for me, too, too much for, for my understanding. But it also tells me that I've been given everything that I need for the rest of my life 
to study and to get to know God even so much more. And so when, when, when considering an argument such as the rabbi presented, and again, I'm speaking of this because we have the Father speaking to Messiah here, <clears throat> I must consider the necessity for God to be beyond me. Because if God is equal to me, then He was not able to provide for me. And so this Jewish teacher should have known. He should have known that it's equally impossible to create something from nothing. I can create things. I can Actually, I can assemble things. Mankind can assemble things. We might be able to change things, but we can't make a thing from absolutely nothing. God was able to do that. We are unable to call a nation that isn't into a nation that is and even do it three times so that we would have understanding exactly what God did in nation Israel. And then again, looking at Israel as we are here with Assyria back in Isaiah's day, but even looking at them in our day today as they're there and surrounding by all, surrounded by all these nations that hate them and want to destroy them, God is able to keep them. And so man tries to the negotiate peace in all of these things, but all things are held together by God. The omnipresence of God is impossible too, but God is omnipresent. That means to be present everywhere at the same time. That's how we can say that Christ is amongst us, Christ is with me, Christ is within me, but also know that somebody on the other side of the world, that Christ is there as well. Just as truly as I can't be at my home right now, I know as I enter into my home, I know that Christ is there. I know wherever I go that Christ is there. What if Christ isn't there? I mean, have you ever considered it from that perspective? What if you move into a situation, circumstance, or whatever it might be? Just think of how vulnerable that you are if Christ isn't there. Because if Christ isn't there, then God is not in control of that situation. If God is not in control of that situation, then everything is just left to chance, which we know is impossible because, in fact, Christ is there. And if Christ is there, situations, circumstances, whatever it might be, then all things truly can work together for the good of God. As far as communication, we've seen communication between the Godhead even from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city, this is at the Tower of Babel, and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. And so we're invited into this conversation that God is having. And so what God does in the Old Testament, and it's why we studied the Old Testament, He starts to set standards. He gives us little insights in who He is, and not only what He's able to do, but just as important, what He is going to do. So that we're able to look at the things that He has done in the New Testament what he continues to do today, we can relate back to Old Testament scriptures and we can see the foundations that were laid and understand that these things are truths. Later on, we see in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. And so again, we have that dynamic of God that as God truly is one, we have Christ here without a doubt and the Father. Now when I say the Father up in heaven, that kind of gives us a perspective of God is sitting out in somewhere in outer space on a planet somewhere, whatever it might be. 
But heaven, I think even heaven is amongst us because God is always amongst us. But here he is, here's Christ praying to his Father in heaven. So what we have in our scriptures here is this privilege of eavesdropping once again upon a conversation. We did so at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Christ communicating with the Father. Here we have the Father communicating with him or God just simply communicating with Messiah. Again, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth at which it comes from, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit of those who walk on it. In the introduction, chapter 5, to this conversation, we are reminded of the big things that God has done in the past so that we would not be surprised when He does big things in the future and how it comes about that God does these big things. Now, we look and, and first, thus says God the Lord. There was a lot of gods back in those days. There's still a lot of gods in these days, but he uses the, the word Lord. It's the name of God that we were first introduced in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. It's the tetragrammatron Yahweh. Yahweh means I am that I am, or truly what it means is the God who is. Because as God was sending Moses into Egypt, really what was he confronting? Pharaoh, yes, but the gods of Egypt, all of these multiple gods. But this, the thing, unique thing about it is Moses should have had a confidence because he was representing the God who truly is. And so, thus says God the Lord. God the God who really is. Now, we know how God exists, of the existence of God, two ways. Because of His Word and because of creation. We know that creation came from somewhere. There had to be some sort of source for it. And actually, the two go hand in hand. And I really believe that we see both of these right here. Because again, he says, Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So dividing off uh, verse 5 here, the two who's, or really the three who's, the first two who's who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread forth the earth. How did all that come about? Well, we know in Genesis, what did it say? And God said, and God said, and God said, it all came through the word of God. As God spoke, he spoke things into existence. He created something from nothing. But then we go back and go to the third who, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So when it speaks of breath, what he's speaking of is life. How did man get life? Well, you see the picture of the life that was given in in the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. But also we see the salvation experience of mankind and it was just as truly as, as creation, as there was nothing there, and God spoke it into existence, salvation was the same thing. There was nothing there. I mean, yeah, there was your physical being, but spiritually speaking, there was absolutely nothing there. Matter of fact, you were spiritually dead in your sins and your trespasses. And just as surely as he spoke creation into existence from nothing, through the power of his word, He brought new life into your life through the power of His spoken word as well. And so 
the scriptures are constantly talking about the supremacy of the word of God. That's why John started out his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and it pointed towards Christ. And there's a a, a great unity there with Christ. And you can go to Galatians, not Galatians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. And you see all that was created was created by Christ. And then you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and there's a unity there in the Word of God. Now in Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2, and I, this is one of my favorite Psalms, it says, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods, small g, the false gods. I will sing praises to you. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. So God wants you to look at what he says to even a greater degree than who he is. Because what he says will define who he is. Why? Because what he says is truth. And especially when it comes to God, all the cults and every other opinion, the only way that we truly know who he is is by his word, and so it's essential. Now, how is God attacked? God isn't so much attacked by his existence, because most people will acknowledge that God exists or, or even who he is, but he's usually attacked upon his word. Because if his word is altered, then we can alter the perception that man has of who he is. And so, the acid test of every false doctrine is what do they say of the word of God? Have they changed? Have they added the word of God? And have they altered the meaning of who Christ is? If they alter the meaning of the word of who, by who Christ is, it has to start at that foundation, the word of God, their particular gospel, their particular Bible, whatever it might be. James Montgomery Boyce said, this is as if God is saying, I value my integrity above everything else. Above everything else, I want to be believed. Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now again, he's not talking to us. He's not talking to Christians. A lot of the ministry of the Lord, we can relate to it and equate to it. But here he's speaking specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you have the, cop, the capital Y. Lord, this is, he uses that term again. This is a constant thing because the other gods aren't. First, he called them into righteousness. This would be his calling with a saving purpose in mind. This is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God that was able to bring salvation. Why? Because there was no righteousness in mankind. We were lost sinners. The way that God, the Father, held the hand of the Messiah. How did he hold the hand of Messiah? Looking at Jesus' time here on earth, how did he hold his hand? Well, every time that Christ was going to make a major decision or even just before the cross, there was that necessary element of prayer. And I just present to you, that's the same way that he holds our hand today, is through prayer, that communication that we have with our Father. It says, he will keep him and give him. Well, as you look at the, the Gospels, there was many times when the Jews, I mean, he was in his hometown, and I, I stood at what they say is the foot of that cliff. They were going to throw him over that cliff. And it was substantial. Anybody thrown over that cliff was definitely going to die. But then Jesus just 
walked between them and, and just left. And there was a time just before the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, this occurred in John chapter 8, that he said that, I am. He, he, he was basically referring to himself as God, and they took up stones to stone him, but he walked between them and he left. Why? It wasn't his time, and the Father protected him during those times or during that particular time. He kept him, but then there came that time that he gave him. And so God's plan was not to be altered by mankind. We saw in Matthew chapter 4, it's not going to be altered by the devil. It's kept by the Father. So all that time that Christ is here on earth, the Father keeps him. Why? Because there's a particular date and time stamped on God's calendar. And it was all the way up until that time, the day of his crucifixion, it was then that the Father gave him. For God so loved the world that he gave. And the, whole, the idea is gave him up to be crucified for the sins of mankind or to be punished for our sins. The given gift here, it resulted in a new covenant. Why a new covenant? Because the covenant, that it was the Old Testament covenant based upon the blood of bulls and goats, and there's the new covenant that is based upon the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that spelled out for us in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. It says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So he's speaking about relationship here. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Because remember the Old Testament uh, sacrifice? The best it could do would be to cover sin. But this is sin done away with. And that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And again, you could tell that, that rabbi that I saw at the wailing wall. I look on top of that Temple Mount, and what do I see? And, and it's kind of sad. They, they took a picture, you know, the tourist thing. They bring you to this one place on the Mount of Olives, and they line you all up there, and they take a picture of you. And it's a cool thing, but you see the Temple Mount behind you. But what do you see? You see the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is, is from Islam. It's the place that they believe that Muhammad ascended up into heaven. And so on this place that should be the temple, there's this place that is a monument, really, to the flesh. And you got to tell, you know, what I would tell that, 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 that rabbi, how come you guys aren't giving your lives to reestablish a temple if what you say and what you believe is true? I mean, if we're still holding to the Old Testament, then there's no covering of sin. There's no covering of sin because you are not making the sacrifice, and they're not making any kind of sacrifice, but any kind of sacrifice in the appointed place. That temple has to exist. But we know it was done away with. 70 AD. Why? Didn't need it anymore. We had the cross of Christ. Again, 
the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. And then we see here, Messiah was to be a light to the Gentiles. And just this, this point is what I want to pretty much finish our study with tonight. The idea here is the light to the Gentiles. Well, again, as Paul was going into Acts in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, going into uh, Athens in Acts chapter 17, he was entering into these Jews who were, as he described it, groping in the dark. They were in the dark. They didn't have a clue. They were clueless. And what were they doing? They were just groping for some sort of meaning of life. Well, it's Christ who is the light to the Gentiles. He's the source of truth. And he will illuminate the meaning of life and the will of God. There was Pontius Pilate who was sitting there who was very frustrated at the time. He was almost forced to crucify Christ. And as Christ is speaking to him, he mentions truth. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And so I think it's necessary since Christ came as a light to the Gentiles. And we've already seen everybody here is a Gentile to understand what truth is. I mean, when you're looking at the debates, really, what is the purpose of the debates? To find out what these guys represent and to make sure what these guys represent is truly truth. And so I've got a little bit of a list in what truth is. First of all, truth is singular. Truth is singular. Truth is singular, it's whole, and it's consistent. It is not fragmented. Something cannot be partially true. Any truth that we find to be partially true is, in fact, not true. Truth has to be completely pure and totally truth. And another thing, every truth has to be related to every other truth. And so if I have a truth over here, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute, and a truth over here, they have to be able to intertwine with one another. And so, as they must exist in harmony... We look up at the makeup of air. I look up at the makeup of air, and I see it's necessary for all living beings to be able to partake of that air. And so I look at a tree. And if I stand next to that tree, I need that air just as truly as that tree needs air. Now, as a scientist thousands of years ago, whatever it might be, I might come up with something I believe to be truth, which in actuality then would just be a theory that, okay, if it's oxygen that I take in, probably wouldn't be able to define it that way thousands of years ago, but the air that I take in is the same air that the tree takes in. Well, it's true to a degree, but not understanding that there's a harmony here in God's truth and that I take in oxygen, I produce carbon carbon dioxide, this tree takes in the carbon dioxide and it produces oxygen. And so I see the truth of the matter working in perfect harmony. But then you look at the fish and you say, well, how does that fish exist? And I would wonder, because if I go underwater, I'm deprived of oxygen and I die. So does that mean that my truth is not true? Well, either it does mean that or it means that I have a lack of understanding. Well, as we're able to delve in a little bit deeper, we understand that the water contains oxygen that the fish use But because of the makeup of it, I'm unable to, for lack of a better term, digest that oxygen into my body for the purpose of sustaining life. And so again, if you you have a truth and you come up with another truth that contradicts that truth, one of them is wrong 
and your belief system starts to fall apart. And again, it's the essence of apologetics to get at the truth of the matter. If you study creation as the Bible states it, the truth you start out from, and that's what the Bible seeks to do, it just starts out with a basic truth, in the beginning, God. And it's been said that if you can buy into that truth, if you can believe that truth, then the rest of the Bible is not going to be hard for you to receive and to digest. If you have a problem with that at the beginning, especially the first 11 chapters, then you're going to be warped in your biblical belief from that point on. You'll give yourself into so many different ideas of men, evolution, and so on and so forth. And so every truth that exists must fit together in one united truth. All other belief systems are called theories because their truths do not line up or un. Provable. We have a problem with the Mormons. The Mormons, we do not believe, is being founded upon truth. Now, there's many reasons that we do not believe that, but mostly because it contradicts the Word of God. But even if you didn't know the Word of God, they believe that there was a lost tribe of Israel, that, and it may be a little off on some of these things, but they went to America. There was native Indians there. There were the Nephites and the Lamanites that... That, that populated this nation, and there was a great war, and I, I'm not really even sure of their theology from that point, but my point is, they say that this country was populated by the Nephites and the Lamanites. The problem is, we've never, other than Mormon archaeology, we've never been able to find any kind of proof of the existence of them. And so, their truth is flawed. Well, the problem is, if you find a flaw in truth, as I stated earlier, then your truth's not really truth. And so, if you can find something in here that's not true, then the whole thing falls apart like dominoes. And you can say, oh my, what if somebody finds something in here that's not true? Well, they've been looking for things like that, untruths in here, for over 2,000 years. People are a lot smarter than us and they've never been able to find one. They have found some scribal errors, but as far as doctrinal truths, they have not been able to find anything that is untrue concerning that. Secondly, truth is objective, and it's not subjective. Truth is as it is and cannot be defined according to what anybody thinks that it should be. When I say objective, you observe truth. Subjective would mean that you create truth. Man cannot create truth. We observe truth and we receive observed truth. That's why we study the Word of God. That's one of the problems that we have in our society today. Our society is a postmodern society. What's a postmodern society? A postmodern society is, is that truth is as you define it. The problem is, have you ever been wrong about anything ever in your life? I saw you say no. Liar! You're wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, we've all been wrong. I mean, and we've just genuinely, you know, we may have believed something with, with all of our heart, but, you know, there's things that we found out. You know what? I was wrong, but we live in a postmodern society. And what's the result of a postmodern society? We have a problem defining even what a boy and a girl is. I mean, we, we can't 
I mean, seriously, you laugh, I laugh too, but seriously, we cannot, as a society, define what a boy and a girl is. And, I mean, isn't that just basic truths there? But if, you know, we've got the thing, if a boy believes he's a girl, then he can be a girl. Why? Well, we live in a postmodern society that you're able to change truths according to your beliefs. And so, it can be observed, truth can be observed and discussed, it can be reinforced, but it cannot be changed, nor is it open to interpretation. And so, there are theories because they have not been brought to the point of truth. There are still some dark areas in man's theories and just things that haven't been proven. When everything is proven and it has been found to fit you know, what is necessary to fit in with other truths and all of that, then it can become a truth. They still call evolution not a truth, but they call it a theory because it has so many holes within it. And it's something that they've propped up in order to not believe in God. But nonetheless, it is a theory. The minute they start calling evolution a truth, they know it's going to be destroyed. Their belief system will be knocked out from underneath them, and now they got a problem with creation once again. They have to acknowledge an intelligent designer, and they've got issues with that. Notice the Bible tells us truth and does not leave room for your opinion. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Thirdly, from the perspective of the Bible, all truth comes from God. Why? Because again, have you ever thought something and been wrong? Well, God has never been wrong. So we understand that God is the center of all truth. He is the origin of perfection. Again, intelligent design. Man does not understand creation or the source of creation because it refuses to acknowledge the source of all truth. In John chapter 18, verse 37, when Christ was standing before Pilate, it says, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I shall bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Again, it always goes back to the Word of God. Fourthly, the truth that comes from God has been embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So why did Christ have to die on the cross? So that you would understand the magnitude of the truth of the love that God has for you. He wanted to reveal that truth to all of humanity, his love for humanity, so he put Christ upon the cross. Now, as he put Christ upon the cross, that cross has cast a 2,000-year shadow. I mean, again, if that wasn't true, do you think the cross would have stood up for over 2,000 years, so far, over 2,000 years? I think it would have been, if it wasn't a truth, if Christ wasn't true, and the word wasn't true, I think it would have been very easily debunked. Don't you think? Don't you think? I mean, there's people that have immersed their whole lives. Matter of fact, there's people that have immersed their lives into debunking the Bible and have come out believers because they realize that this is truth. History tells us that Christ died upon the cross. Truth tells us that he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. History tells us that Pontius Pilate, the man who didn't know truth, committed suicide. And again, that's what mankind does is he refuses to acknowledge the truth 
In essence, he's committing suicide. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. Why? It's not based. Man's ways are not based upon truth. Back in Isaiah chapter 42, we see the work of Messiah. And again, the basis for this is truth. Because again, verse 6 ends with, as a light to the Gentiles. Then verse 7, what does that truth do? It opens the blind eyes. It brings out uh, prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, and that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And again, we have them in the Scriptures. That the Bible told us that the earth was round when man thought it was flat. God says, behold, I sit over the sphere of the world. He spoke of the pathways that went through the seas. And it wasn't even until I think the 1800s, maybe early 1900s, I don't recall, that man even understood that there were currents that went through the seas. The scriptures spell all of these things out for us to a degree. I mean, obviously God leaves some discoveries to us without a doubt. But the thing that I see is, as the Bible started out in the beginning God and spoke of that truth, it's been truth from cover to cover. And that truth has played out in my life. That truth, if you're a born-again believer here tonight, it's played out in your life. It's when you find out that something's false, that everything falls away, but I've got a confidence in God's word because, again, it stood the test of time. Man's words have failed them every time. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death, but it's in God's word that we have eternal life. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word, your word that guides us in this life and in the midst, Father, of all of the world raging and plotting their vain thing. Lord, we stay rooted and grounded in your truth. And so, Father, I just thank you for your word once again that blesses us, that speaks to us, that guides us and directs us. I pray for your truth, Father, that it would reign in our life in the week to come, that we would be led by it. And, Father, you would guide us in every situation and circumstance of our life. Father, I pray for those who have come out tonight, and I pray for those who may be struggling, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would uphold them, and that you would keep them. I pray, Father, that they would lean upon your word and not their own understanding. I pray, Father, that you would watch over and keep us. Bless us for being here tonight. Protect us as we drive home, but give us wisdom and understanding in the situations and circumstances that you lead us in, but also, Father, the people that you bring to us. Lord, that we would simply glorify your name in all instances we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?